0: Now this week, as I was, uh, as I was preparing to, to preach and to study, I got into a bit of a rabbit hole on bears. Okay, is anyone else a bear fan? Anya and is a bear fan. Um, bears, bears are a really, really interesting set of animals, lots of different types of bears. Let me tell you some of the fun facts that I found out about bears this week. Here's number one. They weigh 57 stone on average. We're talking about grizzly bears, right? Grizzly bears. 57 stone. That's a lot. They have the strength of five humans, an average human, five times as strong. They eat in a day 40 kg of food. That is a lot. You're very unimpressed by this, but that is that is a mad thing about bears. You should be oohing and aahing. Bears are powerful and strong and mighty. They need a lot of energy because they use a lot of energy when they destroy and defeat their prey. Now, bears, this huge, powerful beast, in the late autumn, early winter, sleep. We call it hibernation, don't we? Lots of animals hibernate. They go to sleep. Late autumn, early winter, there's a hormone that's released within them as the cold approaches and the food dries up that causes them to to drift slowly into this sleep, this slumber, It's basically the effect of taking sleeping pills, and for about seven months, they're in this warm, cozy den, often with their cubs, sheltering, and it's nice, and it's protective, and it's safe, and it's comfortable. Their heart rate normally is 80 beats per minute, pretty standard for bears, and in hibernation it drops to just 8 beats per minute. There's huge potential power there, isn't there, in a bear? Huge power. Strong, mighty, powerful. But in hibernation, it's asleep. It's dormant. It's lying there, ready to wake up. And when the spring kicks in, and the flowers bloom, and the birds start singing, and the temperatures warm, the bear yawns and stretches, and wakes up. Now, over the course of the the past week, (laughs) we've seen in Revelation a couple of things. Was anyone here last week? Anyone here last week? Fantastic. We've seen a couple of things, And, and, and three big things that we saw in Revelation last week. I wonder if you can remember. Revelation is a letter. That is, it's written to a specific group of people at a specific time, So remember, we thought about the fact that it was written to them and it was written for us. Do you remember that? And so it can't be true of something for us today that it wasn't true of something for them there. It's a letter, so it's written to real people in real times and we need to use that to remember its context. And remember the context was severe persecution. We walked through some of the history, didn't we, of persecution in the church and saw the the bombardment of hate and hurt and death against the church, this small group of Christians trying to live for Jesus in a post Acts world. It's not only a letter, we thought about it being a prophecy, a prophecy that is God's word through a prophet, John in this case, to the people. That is, we need to pay attention to it because it's God's words. Remember, Jesus is the witness we saw in chapter one telling us what is going to happen, soon take place. And we thought about the fact that when we read Revelation, it's not a linear sequence. It's not this happens, then this, then this, then this, then this. In fact, it's different perspectives, and we get different things at different times. And then the third thing, so the letter, it's a prophecy, and we thought about it being an apocalypse. That's what that word, Revelation, means, apocalypsis, which simply means something that's hidden, being revealed or unveiled. The curtains are pulled back. And God invites us in to see behind the scenes, remember? He wants to call you out from the audience, from the crowd, take you backstage and show you the cables and the screens and the mics and how it all works so that you can know for sure what's going on in the world around us, what it looks like, what it means for life today as a Christian. Now there's one thing that the enemy will love. is this, a sleeping Christian. A hibernating Christian. That is when someone believes in Jesus, you're forgiven your sins, you're given the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you, and he frees you to live a life devoted to him. Giving your all, giving your everything to him. He's my number one. I'm going to sacrifice for him. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to follow him. And the thing that the enemy loves most of all is a sleeping Christian. That is someone who who maybe got that at first, but is now, you know, that huge power that God has given us in the Spirit, in the Scriptures. that's just laying dormant. The enemy would love that so that God's kingdom is small and doesn't really do much. And today, as we go through these seven letters to the seven churches, we're not going to read them all. We're not going to get into the details. We're going to try and get a picture of what's going on here. That's why I'd encourage you to go away with the reading plan and read them. Slow down and take some time to digest what's going on in each of these churches. And I think there's two ways, there's loads more, but there's two key ways in these seven churches, that the enemy loves to lull Christians to sleep. Okay, so that's where we're going. We're going to look at two reasons that it says here, two things, two ways. The enemy wants us to just stay down, stay quiet, stay sedate, hibernating, and not tapping into the power that God has given us in the spirit in this world. So here's the first one. The first one is this, cold faith, cold faith. Faith. When you look at the culture around you, I wonder what you see. I think there's a massive thing at the moment, particularly in teenagers, but it, it, it reflects in adults as well, of putting other people down. That is, we, we love in our culture to, to, to kind of be suspicious, don't we, of those around us, of, of entities or, or groups of people. We doubt, we condemn, we, we cancel, and, and, and you see it a lot in teenage, particularly teenage boys, this kind of just putting down each other, and it's, a, and it's a laugh, and it's banter, banter, but it cuts deep on the inside, actually. We put each other down, don't we? Rather than thinking the best of the other person, and you know, wanting the best for them in life, and, and loving genuinely and sacrificially, being humble, being, being humble, in that and being quick to forgive we see that in the culture around us don't we perhaps you see that in your workplace in your family in your in your friends perhaps you see it in yourself sometimes as well it's true in the world and I want to say it's true in the church sometimes too we're too busy often grappling with secondary issues that that divide us and separate us as God's people and we forget the primary. So, so when we talk about primary and secondary issues, we're talking about like primary things where the Bible speaks of. You know the creeds that we often say? If you look at the creed, that's basically the primary things. The things that we can't like, deny, the things that we can't go away from. Things like Jesus' real death, that he really dies. Things like his resurrection, back to life again. Things like the virgin birth. Things like these key core truths that matter to the death. This is what Christianity is about. But Christians historically have divided on secondary issues, right? Things like music. What kind of style of music you like? Do you like it loud? Do you like it quiet? Do you like it organs? Do you like drums? Do you like it? All, these, all these kind of things? Or, or baptism has been a big one throughout the, throughout the centuries. Should you baptize adults? Should you baptize babies? Should you both? Should you kneel? they like... Or style of service? Should we have lots of liturgy and spoken word? Should we have a free service with lots of time and experiences? Should we we have Bible teaching? Should we have thematic teaching? All these kind of things Christians have divided on. And I'm sure as you look around the room here, there's a whole bunch of Christians who are united on the primary things, yet will probably differ on lots of secondary things. And the enemy would love to get in, as I think he does in the churches here, and, and divide, to tear apart, to, to cast doubt and suspicion and to condemn. Because here, as we read through the different churches, you see that the churches are commended and built up for their teaching and their knowledge, and, and they they know the doctrine, they know the key truths, it's there. Their head is full, but their heart is cold. They'd forgotten the thing that made them distinctively Christian, their love for each other, for God. It's in chapter 2, verse uh, 4. It says this, yeah, I hold this against you, it's the scriptures that we read, I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first. And it comes up in different churches too. Would you rather be right than love your sister? Would you rather be known for your neat, clever doctrine or your love for your brother? Our secondary issues are really important and we should spend loads of time grappling with And getting to the heart of it and and desiring to find out exactly what God would have us believe about these things through the scriptures. They're important, but they're not core. The core unites, and often the secondary divides. And the church has been historically pretty bad at this, I think, in lots of ways. For those in, in the world who perhaps struggle with, um, sexuality and gender. There's been real hurt in ways that Christians or churches have handled those people. These, these are people to be loved. And if that's, you, if that's you, if you've had your fingers burnt by churches or Christians, then I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Because Christians above all else should be those who love. And if you're here tonight and you, and you feel that way, then I'm really glad you're here love you I care about you we we want the best for you we want to listen to you we want to serve you and that doesn't mean that we chuck out the Bible we want to search the scriptures and we want to we want to humbly come before God and say God what what do you say on these conversations as we should with any conversation and we want to say teach us we we come to it humbly and and we come to you and we say we love you we love you you are a person to be loved and most of all, my priority for you is to know Jesus. We cannot lose that love, because otherwise we encounter a divided church. And we know from history that a number of these churches disbanded because of their disunity. Because they were core on the gospel, on the, on the key things, but on the secondary things, they were miles apart, and so they, they parted ways. They're important things, but they're not divisive things. And just imagine if we were a church here at St. James, if you're a believer who oozed the love of God. Just everywhere you went. You come to people with humility and gentleness and respect. You, You seek to build up, not tear down. You seek the best for someone, not the worst, to trample on them. You love and you love and you love, just like Jesus did. Imagine what this church would look like and and I wonder if you spotted as we went through some of the repetitions that, that you saw, one of the key repetitions that comes up at the end of each church is the opportunity to repent to say i'm sorry, and repentance isn't condemnation it's it's turning away and it's, and it's receiving life the way that God would have us live. It's coming back to the Father who's standing there with open arms and saying, I need you. Forgive me. And it's welcome and it's acceptance because Jesus has paid for it. But here's the second thing that I want us to think about tonight. And it's this bare minimum faith. Bare minimum I think there's two aspects to this that I want us to think about. The first is this apathy. Apathy. That is that is is no big deal, right? And and we particularly see this in the in the the church to Sardis. I want you to look at this. Let's look at chapter three. We're going to read the first three verses. He says to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, "These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars." We're going to get to those kind of things next week and beyond, don't worry. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. See, the world's goal is to lull you to sleep, to go with the status quo, to live your life as the world says you should, and that's it. But God has more for us, He has a bigger purpose and plan than just. The mundane run of the mill things that the world has for us. He's called you out of darkness. He's called you into his wonderful light. He's given you full forgiveness and acceptance and freedom and redemption. And he welcomes you into his family with open arms for the purpose of bringing him glory and loving people in this world today. In your actions, in your speech, telling them this amazing gift that you've been given the gospel. And yet the world lulls us to sleep, doesn't it, with Netflix and apps and like whatever it is. We love to kind of binge out on stuff. And often we're left feeling that God's work isn't actually that big a deal. It doesn't really matter that much. And I've had lots of conversations with Christians over the years whose stories have gone something like this. They became a Christian when they were a teenager. And they were really excited. They were really passionate. And they were on it. They were like reading scriptures every night. And they were telling people about like, Jesus. and It was really exciting. About 18, 19, they went off to uni. Really exciting. They left uni, got into a job. And, and, and advanced massively in their careers and, and financially and like, in their family. had family and all that kind of thing. However, in their faith, it didn't really grow much past their early adult life. They plateaued in their faith and in every other area of life advanced massively, but but faith was just still much the same. Going through the motions, perhaps, they said. Going to church on a Sunday, but not really living it out in the week, not really being serious about sin, having apathy towards God. And that was where a lot of the people in these churches found themselves. Let's look at Laodicea in chapter 3. Verse 15, it says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. This is challenging stuff, isn't it? And I don't know where you're at in your faith, where you feel in relation to to God working in you. I don't know whether you feel like you're going great guns and or you're feeling pretty, you know. And the command here is to wake up, isn't it? To get serious about your faith, to make it a priority, to pursue God and his ways and his purposes above all else. Allow the, the warmth of the spring and the blooming flowers and the smell of the air wake you up in your faith, because there's power that's lying dormant, and all it needs is the Spirit to wake you up and to be used for God's glory. The second aspect of bare minimum faith is this, and we see this all through the churches. In fact, most of them, there is a tolerating of sin in our lives. And the biggest thing that comes up in these churches is around sexual immorality. It comes up time and time again in a number of different places for the people then in there were these kind of temples that you could go to, and there were prostitutes there and like in this really public way you could kind of you know and, and adultery was generally quite accepted and in fact encouraged in the day, so you you could do it and it was quite quite free and, and, and encouraged and accepted. And today, perhaps, we, we don't have those same kind of things, but the rise of pornography, we call it sleeping around instead of, instead of adultery nowadays. Perhaps it's just softer labels that we give to similar heart attitudes. What might have been done in public then is now done in secret, now. And the thing with sexual sin, anything outside of God's plan, which is beautiful for human sexuality, it leads your heart to become hard to God and his ways. It leaves you feeling alone often. And And we end up sometimes agreeing with the world because there's no outrage to it anymore. If it's accepted, well, how, can I, how can I bring these two things together? Sin destroys us. And what, whatever it is, not just sexual sin, but it puts the Christian into hibernation because we feel guilty and we feel paralyzed and we feel dirty and we, and we stay there, sleeping in our cave because it's cozy and warm and comfortable and we don't want to come out. And perhaps that's you. You hear the birds singing out in the cave but you're happy in your safe, cozy, warm environment. You don't want to come out. And I want to say this, God, God cares about what we do in our minds and our hearts, what we do with our bodies. He cares because he made us and he loves us and he knows what's best for us. And for a lot of people here, for a lot of the people in, in, in these churches, they were just you know, giving away their bodies to do whatever they wanted because it brought them pleasure. And God has beautiful plans for us, for our sexuality, for our relationships. And and if this is you, then I want to encourage you to get some kind of accountability. Find a brother or sister you can run alongside with and and be honest with. Say, look, I've been in the cave and I've been struggling with this for for years. And I've never told anyone about this. But tonight, right now, I'm going to tell you this is my struggle. Will you pray with me? Will you help me? Because the danger is if we, if we don't do this, we get so sucked into it and our hearts become hard and we just end up in this downward spiral and we end up walking away from God and his beautiful plans for us. And the opportunity here, the invitation again, is to repent. Come back to the Father. He's not standing there like, if I want you. He's there with open arms. And he says, come and receive full and free forgiveness at no cost to you and at every cost to me. And if you do that, if you come back to him and say, God, I'm sorry, I've been far off, but I'm coming back, he will welcome you with a smile on his face Because he loves you. You can step into the light today. You can walk out of the cave. You can come back to fullness of life. Not to be condemned, but to be forgiven. And brought into the family. Conviction, if you're sat here tonight and feeling convicted, is a good thing. Because it shows that the Spirit's working in you. It's a brilliant thing. And the interesting thing about bears is that when they're hibernating, you know I said about their heart rate, it drops from 80 to 8, 8 BPM, right? But their mind, their brain, is hotter than that. There's a lot of blood there. And, and it's more active. So that when danger comes to the entrance of the cave, they can instantly respond to it. And perhaps for some of us, we're, we're sleeping in this... In, in our Christianity, and we're hibernating, we're safe, we're cozy, we're warm, we, we like it, and we're happy to respond when we come to church on a Sunday, and the preacher calls you out, maybe, or you're, you're, you're I don't know, whatever it is, you're happy to respond, you know, your brain's there, respond, respond, but but God calls us for, to more than just responding, he calls us to be proactive in our faith, and that is the downfall of a lot of these churches. They become complacent, they want to mold in with the world. Around them, and so they sit in their cozy caves feeling good about themselves. And there is nothing more than the enemy would like for you to be sleeping as a Christian. Because it's an easy win for him. But just imagine. Just imagine if God were to look at your life, and maybe He were to write you a letter, or He was to look at the life of St. James, and He was to write us a letter. And he says he says, "I know your steady, faithful work for me. I know your patient endurance to keep going, even though it's hard. I know your gritty battle with sin, even though no one sees. I know your deep love for one another that goes beyond understanding. I know your love of the scriptures. That you search day and night. I know. Wouldn't that be incredible? And there's a repeated phrase at the end of each letter that that, that comes up time and time again. Let me read the one in chapter 3 verse 21. It says this. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears, that's you, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So you've got the invitation there to victory and to receive the reward. given the right to eat from the tree of life in God's paradise. A crown placed on your head as you're kept safe from judgment. Dressed in white and acknowledged before God. Brought into God's plan and never left outside. Given the right To sit with Jesus on his throne, to the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious. And the question that we see through the book of Revelation is how on earth will God's people do that? How will they remain faithful to the end when the world is so strong and the pull from within is so great? How can they claim that victory? And that's where the truth of the gospel comes in. The uniqueness of Christianity is that it is nothing to do with you and me. And that it is everything to do with Jesus. He is the one that when you fall, when you walk back into the cave, because we're creatures of habit, he will come in and pull you out. You might be kicking and screaming. He is the one that when when you go back in the cave for the 15th time in a day, you shout at your kids. And you open up your laptop, whatever it is. He's the one who says, I forgive you if you come to him. And he is the one who gives you his victory. The one who died and rose again and ascended into glory and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He gives you his victory. He says, I've won it for you. Band, why don't you come up? We're going to sing a song now called He Will Hold me fast and I want this to be our prayer because we cannot do this by ourselves but Jesus is the one who holds on to us will never let go and ultimately will build his church and will bring us to victory because the victory is his Now, next week is our first look behind the scenes we're going to Pull back the curtain and see the very room where the throne of God is. And it is, it is beautiful. Let me pray. Take a minute and just talk to God for yourself. Tell him. Tell them what you're thinking, how you're feeling. Be honest with them. Father, we love you and we love your ways. Thank you that you came down in Jesus, sending him to call us out and to forgive us. Thank you that you draw us into your family, that we are yours. and father just like the people here in revelation we face the same temptations and struggles and doubts and, and father we're sorry for retreating we're sorry for just staying where we are and father for some of us here we pray that your spirit would be would be nudging us and would be moving us To a place where perhaps tonight we can take a step out of the cave for the first time. Father, may your spirit warm us up. And thank you that the life you've called us to is beautiful and brilliant and freeing. But it's hard. And we mess it up a lot, God. And we're sorry. We repent and we come back to you as our Father. Thank you that your arms are open because we cannot do this, but you can. Thank you that Jesus will give us his victory.